Live from the Great White North, this is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Pod. It is April 15th, 2021. My name is Braden Dennis. As always, joined by my co-host, Simon Belanger. What's going on, my guy? Air Canada is getting some uh, big loan from the feds. What's happening here? Yeah, so there was a announcement this week by the federal government that they'll um, provide Air Canada with up to $4 billion worth of loans. Um, they'll also take an equity stake of $500 million at a discount to the uh, current share price. Um, that should amount, from what I've read, about 6% uh, stake in Air Canada. It's really not surprising. We had a lot of questions. If you remember last year, uh, people trying to um, invest or asking us our opinions on Air Canada and the fact that uh, it had totally bottomed out in terms of share price. And uh, one of the things we had mentioned is that, yeah, sure, like we understand the government would not let them go bankrupt and there might be some opportunities there. But again, if the government is bailing them out, there's going to be strings attached to that. And that's what we're seeing right now. So one of the other conditions, uh, suspensions of share buybacks, and uh, they're not allowed to do any dividends during the loan period. And uh, another condition, I think that was a big contentious point, is that uh, they have to issue refunds to customers. I think what they were doing if I remember correctly, is they were offering credits instead. Um, so I mean, I'm. It was uh, it was predictable that this would happen, especially uh, going back to the automotive sector in 2008, 2009, the type of loans that the government did, and they had equity stakes as well back then. So it's uh, just uh, the same kind of thing. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, six percent is fairly sizable, and um, I mean, it kind of makes sense for both both parties so uh, i guess we'll see how it plays out um so the coinbase ipo was yesterday right yeah today's thursday it was yeah. yesterday mm-hmm. uh it's trading today quite a lot down from the first trades yesterday um it's about 60 billion in market cap today and we were talking offline we were texting each other back and forth and it's just really hard to determine where this business goes right here like the growth is incredible, and what was it like they did like three billion in free cash flow last year? Like that is legit. Like that is very legit. Um, but it's hard to tell if it's sustainable. And I keep asking myself, like, what makes Coinbase the biggest? Like, why Coinbase? I mean, it's an exchange, like not high moat. Like it, it's just confusing to me. So I don't know if you have any takes on that. I mean, we talked about this again last week, but now it's a public company, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's several ways to look at Coinbase. Um, Just like you said, uh, there's impressive growth. But again, uh, we're looking at a year where crypto really took off and it's just continuing in the first quarter and seems to want to continue at least until the as far as I can see in the next few months. one of the issues with them is their fees are not low. So as there's more competition for other exchanges, it may affect their, their margins overall. Um, one of the other risks is what if there's a crypto bear market? Uh, typically, the um, the exchange and the revenues will go down when that happens. Um, on the positive side, though, uh, there's a lot of investors, retail, but especially institutional, that uh, may 
look at Coinbase as a way to, um, especially for fund managers, to say, look, we do have exposure to crypto. We have Coinbase right. stocks, right? And a lot of retail investors may not want to hold Bitcoin or crypto in general. It may be a way for them to just get skin in the game. Get some exposure. Exactly. So there's definitely some plus, there's some positives and negatives, there's some upside for Coinbase, but there's also some potential downside. So it'll be interesting how it goes. Uh, personally, I'd probably give it a year just to see how it goes, uh, especially, you know, maybe there will be a bear market this year for crypto and uh, just to see how their revenues and profits and uh, cash flow is impacted by that. Right. Because 60 billion in market cap, I mean, I don't know what the market cap is of bitcoin i know it's over a trillion dollars but like say it's a trillion dollars six percent like it's pretty sizable um and you know it almost touched a hundred billion yesterday so i mean this thing's going to be crazy volatile if you own shares you have to just be aware that it's going to be nutty volatility for a while i think that's just the nature of it um today we got news that three of the seven top executives at Shopify will be stepping down for various reasons. Um, stock is up today, but it, like you know, everything's green today, so it's really hard to decipher what it is. But I, I, I honestly think that uh, given some of the public statements by these executives, they just have nothing but awesome things to say about the company and awesome things to say about Toby. Uh, Toby's become, you know, one of the most well-respected entrepreneurs and, and executives in the technology world now. So um, this is an impressive company. They've taken all kinds of tactical steps and made very important partnerships with, you know, the next boom in their business, which is enabling e-commerce sales inside of the social media platforms. Like they have the big um, Facebook shop contract that they're helping facebook with and um it's weird like these big tech companies colliding to work on things and shopify seems to always be in the mix when it comes to e-commerce so something that they're doing is providing so much value that it doesn't make sense for some of these big tech companies to invest in it which is which means a lot right because think of how much cash these companies have on their balance sheet to you know, build some of this infrastructure themselves. So that means something to me anyways. I don't know if it's the right or wrong take, but um, it's interesting to see that play out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I didn't read too much up on it, so uh, I'll kind of, I'll agree with what you just said. Um, <laughs> but it's still Fair a company enough. that I I kind of hit myself that I never invested because I thought it looked too... Uh, too expensive but you know you win some you lose some you kind of have to come to uh to to terms with that when you're an investor oh totally i mean you have that framework right and that's an important takeaway because you have a framework that you've built for yourself and sometimes you know you can overpay for stocks and then that just can kill investment returns over time and Shopify is still very expensive and it's been expensive this whole time. I mean, buying it was the right trade this whole time, but, um, you know, that's built on upon a lot of assumptions that the business executes wonderfully well and they did. So shareholders were rewarded appropriately.
Yeah, and they they almost have like for evaluation like that. As much as I like uh, Shopify, they almost have to execute to perfection when you're looking exactly. at uh, such high multiples. So um, I don't think they're going away anytime soon. But it's possible they get a hiccup and evaluation could take a hit. Okay, so today we are going to talk about some sectors and themes, secular trends that we're very excited about. Uh, Simon's gonna give us a couple of ETFs uh, to play some of those secular trends and some of the holdings inside of them. And then I will cap it off with a GFL dive. I did uh, a post on Stratosphere from members today on GFL. Uh, It's a very awesome Canadian success story, and uh, we'll get to that later. So, Simon, what are some ETFs to play some secular trends and some themes um, that you've been thinking about, and I know we've both been back and forth on a lot of these themes. Yeah, yeah. So the first one is a way for people to invest in the Chinese internet companies. If you're interested in investing in those and you're looking to not necessarily own a specific company or you want to edge your bet and own a, like a broadly a lot of them. Uh, so the first one, and I've researched that, and it's really the the only one that I could find that has the most prominent internet companies in China. So it's the Crane Shares CSI China Internet ETF. Uh, the management expense ratio is not low. It's 0.73%. Um, the ticker is KWEB. Um, so this is one that I own. And one of the things I like about ETFs, uh, because uh, I, I trade with Questrade, is that you can buy as little as you want and the fees are pretty much zero i think there's like a, a few cents for each trade when you buy you only uh, there's like the ecn fee of like four cents yeah yeah exactly and it's it's a great way to slowly build something up especially for some companies um that you may be interested in and the shares uh, may be more expensive than what you can afford so the etf's a good route uh, especially if you have that zero dollar fee because you can get uh, some really good exposure and dollar cost average so to get back at the crane shares uh, etf so some of the holdings so you'll recognize some of the big names so alibaba tencent they both have over 10 percent uh, meituan is an online shopping uh, platform has seven percent uh, baidu uh, jd.com so those are all in the top 10 uh, holdings trip.com is also a pretty popular one over there so that's one of them that i do own and on top of having shares of 10 cents uh, that i own so it's a it's a good way if you like that internet play but you don't uh, necessarily want to stay on top of all the individual companies and there's a lot of names you probably also don't know in there that you'll have exposure to the mega caps the mega pa- mega cap Chinese tech companies are all like I know very smart people that are bullish on all of them. I saw um, Munger took a position in in Baba recently as well, oh, yeah. which I thought mm-hmm. w- which I thought was interesting. So that's the largest holding here, eleven percent. It's basically tied with ten cent there. Um, so seven, what is it, seventy three basis points? The fee? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's pretty high, but I get, you, you bring up a good point, right? Like if you're investing five hundred dollars, like what are you, like what are you gonna do? Buy like one share of Alibaba, one share of Tencent, and like it's it's go- like one share of JD, like it's goofy, right? So you can just go ahead and, and buy an ETF, um, and at least familiar 
familiarize yourself with some of these names and the, the nature of Chinese tech because it's not easy to understand if you don't live there. And I still don't fully understand. I don't live there, but like, you know, you can do some research and own the ETF in the meantime. Yeah, exactly. And that's why I own it. So the second one that I like uh, is uh, Invesco S&P Small Cap Information Technology ETF. It's also one of that I've owned. Um, I've actually had it for a bit more than a year and I kind of regularly just add a couple shares uh, because again, there's no fees when I do so. There's a 0.29% uh, management expense ratio, which is very reasonable. And uh, some of the holdings, I'll be honest, I don't know any of them. So that's why I do invest <laughs> in that ETF. They're all small caps, but I wanted exposure to specifically small cap information technology companies. And to me, that was a great way to do it. It's performed very well for me. I have no idea if it'll continue performing well, but uh, it's uh, one that I do like for that because um, they're not necessarily companies I would uh, dig into. And it just gives me exposure to that. And it follows a S&P index for small caps information technology. This is an interesting one, right? Because like the biggest holdings, like just under 4%, but there's going to be so much outperformance from this, from just a few names. I feel like, um, you know, some of these small caps that become big cap technology companies and just have sweet margins and unreal free cash flow. Um, so that, that makes a lot of sense. I, I think I know alarm.com. I'm pretty sure that's owned by Chuck Aker. I follow his 13F every year, so oh, there you go. It's got to be that's got to be worth something. I think yeah. it's in his 13F. I could be completely butchering that, but I, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, but it's just good, good to show people that you don't need to necessarily know the companies when you invest in an ETF because you get automatic uh, diversification, and it's a great way to have exposure to a specific sector or you know a theme. Um, or obviously, we've talked before about broad back broad-based index funds that uh, I think are the basis for a lot of people. But for those people who own those index funds and want more exposure to specific sections of the uh, the stock market, this is great. Um, I'm going to jump in there. Sorry to interrupt mm-hmm. you. There's one thing you said that you know, I, don't, I don't roast you too often. I, I haven't yeah. recently. Anyways. Go for it. <laughs> I, I think you should try to at least know some of these top names. Like I'm gonna challenge you on that. If you're gonna own the ETF, you should you should probably know the top five names at least what they do. Yeah, I mean it's a good that's, point. Yeah, that's a fair point, right? Yeah, for I mean, for a on. small cap though, I feel like those uh, top top holdings because they're so closely bunched. You're looking at uh, you know the top ten holdings. It goes from two point six percent to three point eight percent, three point nine. Um, so one yeah, of the there's issues probably like is fifty plus names in here at least. Yeah, like uh, seventy five. 75 holdings and you know on a probably quarterly basis because they're small cap there's probably a lot of movement so that's going to be my argument for this one specifically is that uh, they're (laughs) so small that that they'll flip-flop but uh, no that's a good point especially for the bigger ones you'll want to definitely get to familiar like uh, the the one we talked before the uh, china etf that's right because that one's so much more concentrated like the top five names Mm -hmm. are going to be like 80 percent of it yeah, that's not quite, but yeah. So that's why. I mean, you know, it's a good roast, but I, I'm not too concerned <laughs> about it. Fair enough. Uh, All right. One so more. the next one, the um, the arc. Uh, so actually, it's uh, the theme for those is genomics, and that's something I'm not 
super well versed in uh, because it's pretty complicated, let's be honest. Um, so there's two of them that I found that are interesting. There's the uh, ARC Invest Genomics Revolution ETF. So that's uh, Kathy Wood's um, ARC Investment. So she has different type of ETFs. She's the one that's really bullish on Tesla. Um, I put that one there. The management expense ratio is higher at 0.75%. It is an actively managed fund. Uh, I would not personally invest in that one because Teladoc is the top holding. Um, at like, uh, if I remember correctly, it's, uh, I have it right here at 8%. So um, I have enough exposure to tell Doc already, I would not need that. Uh, the one I'm looking to uh, probably start a position slowly in is uh, the other one here is Genomics and Biotech ETF by Mary Assets. I'm probably butchering the name. Uh, the ticker is G-N-O-M. The ARC one was A-R-K-G. Um, the management expense ratio for this one is 0.50%. And I do like some of the holdings. So I do know some of these companies, uh, Brayden. Hey, let's go. <laughs> yeah, so um, CRISPR Therapeutics. Um, I know a little bit Illumina as well. So those are two of the names. Um, there's some names I would have to familiarize myself a little more. But again, because it's well diversified, it's an ETF. I don't feel the need to really know these names in and out. I'll probably just, uh, you know, do a little bit of research, just get an understanding of their business. And then if I like it, probably just start a position in those. Yeah. And that's the way to go, right? Like and giving you a hard time for not owning, knowing the names in an ETF when the position is so small in it, right? Like. That is the beauty of the ETF is you can just kind of own it and go to sleep. Uh, and and for genomics, like what an absolute crapshoot that's going to be over the next 20 years, right? Like how who's to say who the winners are going to be over the next 20 years in genomics? Or, I don't even know how to pronounce it. That's, this is why I should own genomics. an ETF, right? <laughs> This is why I should own an ETF. Yeah. I know mm -hmm. zero about gene editing. And like this is a good takeaway, right? Is, is you got to know yourself. Um, and you can't be an expert in everything. Like you just, it's phys like being an expert in five companies alone is very difficult. Uh, and let alone various sectors as complicated as gene editing. So this is a good takeaway. I mean, if, if you want to own something here, just buy an ETF. Unless you're like a biology person then i mean go for it mm -hmm. right like it would only it would probably take us hundreds of hours just to understand genomics altogether right, right? and then we're not even talking about the companies just understanding the concept and reading you know scientific journals and things like that so i don't have that much time on my hands so that's why i choose the etf route okay so you have one more basket here of companies and we like we didn't fill these out together and I'm looking at it and these are the four names that I would love to own in this basket as well. Like these four mm -hmm. exactly. So we're, we're completely aligned. Um, and I'm a big fan of this secular trend over, over time. Yeah. So this one, I was kind of flip-flopping uh, whether I wanted to find an ETF or a basket. And just because the, the four names, I, I know them pretty well. And uh, they're just really, uh, to me, it's a no-brainer. Uh, you can just buy those four, you hold them, and they should do very well in the long term. Uh, so it's a basket for data REITs and cell towers. Um, so we've talked about data REITs before. So there's two of those names in there. So uh, digital digital 
uh, Realty Trust, DLR, Equinix um, as well, uh, AMT, American Tower uh, Corporation. So they have cell towers and uh, they rent basically those cell towers to various telecom companies. And then same thing for SBAC Communications. So same kind of line as AMT. So you're really owning this basket because you believe that you know, we're just going to be consuming more and more data going forward. Cell phone communications will just keep, you know, be part of our lives even more so in the future than it is right now. So it's kind of a bet on that. And the beauty with these is they all pay us, you know, some DLR pays a bit more of a dividend. Uh, just on top of my hand, I think it's still above 3%. Uh, Equinix pays a nice little dividend, AMT as well. Uh, SBAC comms is not very big it's below one percent but you know it gives you a little bit extra income and there's a, a lot of growth in that sector i think uh, going forward oh tons my uh my mom she's like i need a, i need some dividend payers for my u.s cash what should i do and she's in her 60s and i'm like i'm not going to just tell you to buy some like five percent yielder uh, i want to give her something with upside and with dividend growth potential and i mentioned these four names but i said what you can do is equinix and american tower own some of the best assets in the in that whole country like honestly and american tower especially what a business that has become and the margins are only going to increase increase like those assets just become more and more valuable over time as more equipment gets tacked onto it so like the Revenue per tower is only going to go up um, among more usage, and it's just set up to be a great business. It already is such a great business, and it, it's one that is going to get stronger over time. And you can feel really, like, really high conviction that that's going to be a great business for a long time to come. Yeah, exactly. So I still don't own AMT and SBAC, but it's on my my radar to start some positions. And I already own DLR and Equinix. And uh, it's been, uh, they had a bit of a downturn and just kept adding, just kept adding. And uh, it's, it's, they've gone back up now. So it's, it's done pretty well for me. Um, so the next one is uh, something that a lot of people don't tend to think about it's um water infrastructure so it's the ecofin global water esg fund uh the ticker is eblu um has a pretty reasonable management expense ratio at 0.40 percent um yields a bit more than 1.4 percent and uh, you have the the first name is probably the one that people would be the most familiar with it's uh, american waterworks um, so obviously, um, it's pretty obvious that we need water to live. Um, you know, <laughs> it's uh, to me, it's a it's a really good play, especially um, you know, low, pretty should be pretty low volatility, have some growth in the future as well. Um, so that's one that uh, I find interesting. Um, I don't know too many of the other names, um, so that's something you'll probably want to research just to get an idea of what they are. But uh, they're all related to uh, to water and uh, yeah. That's uh, that's about it for that one. The Ecofin Global Water Fund. Yeah. Oh wait, yeah. they have to have ESG in there as well, course, just to get yeah, some yeah. more attractive <laughs> flows into the fund. Mm. There that's was perfect. a there was a few other, but uh, that one was the one with the lowest fees. So that's oh, that's nice. why. I chose yeah, point this four one. Yeah. is that's reasonable for a niche ETF. It's quite good yeah. actually. Mm -hmm. So between uh, data centers, cell towers, and 
water. I mean, those are probably very safe bets in the future. It's something we're going to need. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'll transition to my segment of this episode, which is GFL. And we're talking about things that are probably pretty certain, which are we're going to need more data and we're going to need water. Transitions well into the post I just did for GFL, which is called Death, Taxes, and Garbage, which is implying that, you know, those are three things that are pretty certain in life. And um, also, I'll go into a bit of a background of the company and, and talk about, you know, what they've done as, as a public company. So they IPO'd in March of 2020. Like, what a time to IPO a public company, eh? March of 2020. Um, and it's been, a, it's been a dang good IPO. I mean, actually, it turned out to be a great time to IPO because everything's gone up since then. Um, so this company's at $14 billion in market cap now which is kind of nuts. This thing's taken the TSX by storm. And um, they've had some really impressive growth. Uh, average revenue growth over the last three years, 43.77%, according to this right here. Uh, trades at about four times sales, fairly reasonable. And um, yeah, so let's let's get into it. Uh, Patrick Dovigi, I should learn how to say his name. Dovigi, Dovigi. He is from the from Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. And this guy is the most pure form of a Canadian entrepreneur ever because he played in the OHL. This guy got drafted by the Edmonton Oilers 41st overall in 1997. Um it said that there are some reports that his teammates said that he was he was not really there and he was clearly motivated as a businessman outside of hockey. And uh, that kept shining through. So he he started working in the waste management business after his cup of coffee in the NHL uh, didn't work out. And uh, he operated his own transfer station in 2004. Uh, In 2007, he basically founded GFL through a a merger of his like small operation and three companies called Direct Line. National Waste Services and Enviro West in 2007. He mashed these three companies together and his own little operation, and um, GFL was, was born. Nowadays, it's a fourteen billion in market cap public co. They do soil uh, remediation infrastructure, and then their main business is solid waste and liquid waste. So solid waste makes up 77.5% of revenue. The infrastructure and soil business takes up 12.5% of revenue. And then liquid waste is about 10% of revs. And um, before I keep going, I'm just looking at the, the photos of the trucks here. And if you know GFL, like those trucks, you can't miss them. Like they are so green, like it's blinding. And um, it's impressive what they've been able to do. And the reason I bought the stock was I've, had done some research into it. So yeah, disclosure, I own the, I own the stock. Um, I was doing more and more research into it and I was, I was scared by the debt load, which I'm going to get into later, but I was on the fence. I was humming and hawing. And then I pulled up to an intersection, downtown Toronto and all four sides of the intersection had a GFL truck. I got home and bought the stock. I'm like, okay, I'm going to start, I got to start a position. Let's just say it's been good since then. And that was not that long ago. They're okay, not. So, uh, they're not very present in Ottawa, though. 
No. no. I think for us is uh, Waste Connection and Waste Wait, Management. Yeah, Waste Connection. Yeah. Those are the big two. So they're the fourth biggest uh, behind those two. Who would be the third? I'm blanking. Anyways, yeah, Waste uh, waste Management, Waste Connections, GFL, big players. So their growth across North America has been oppressive across their different verticals. And the waste business is a consolidation play. GFL is like no different. Their ability to acquire businesses but then also integrate them and actually show better EBITDA margins after integration is what's actually impressive. Because a lot of these businesses, they do acquisition strategies and they're like, yeah, it's accreditive. And then, you know, like integrating them is harder than you would possibly think to integrate these businesses, right? And they're really good at it. So that means something. Um, on the poster, I have all their list of acquisitions since 2007. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. There's 16 they've done since 2012, with most of them coming in the last three years. Um, so what they have to do moving forward is prove like YGFL, because they have won contracts, like key contracts, like Toronto, like big ones in Toronto, for instance. They have a monopoly on like most of BC. They've grown revenues in the US by 80% this year, or in 2020, sorry. And you gotta you ask yourself why GFL? This is they're entering very mature markets. Like infrastructure and waste are hard to penetrate. So like how are they doing this for a company that was just founded in 2007? So something they're doing something well. And there's a couple things that they have to continue to, to prove. Is they gotta prove that they can continue to drive organic growth. Because yeah, it's great to lever up the balance sheet and run a bunch of MA. Um, but they need to really make sure that they can also get some organic growth, you know, like cup, you know, sub 5% a year, but not decreasing organic growth over year, over time, because the, the M and a combined with the organic growth is what makes this really powerful. They got to expand the margins. They have to re- reduce their cost of debt, which I'm going to get into. And they got to keep up this M and a strategy management expects 800 million in free cash flow by the end of 2023. So if they can get there, that would be really good. Okay, so the elephant in the room. When GFL went public, we talked about it on this podcast. And you and I went, like, what is this balance sheet? Like, what is Patrick doing? Like, why, is there so, why is there so much debt? Like, it's actually nuts. Uh, the enterprise value just makes no sense. And uh, most people were scared away by it. It was a short report. I think it was like Spruce Point did some sort short report basically saying that GFL is the, the mafia and that their balance sheet's a joke. Um, anyways, the net leverage is a quarterly metric that they track. They know full well that they need to delever this balance sheet. Like they know fully well. They talk about it all the time. They track net leverage. It's gone down by like 0.3x in the last quarter and they're just trying to get it down and down. So the IPO was actually kind of brilliant because it allowed for M&A expansion in the U.S. and then also for them to be able to delever the balance sheet. So they said moving forward, they need to improve credit quality, refinance debt, and just overall reduce the cost of capital. So bottom line, this is a founder-led business, which I love, like extra points, run by the, the entrepreneur who started it, still runs the show today. Uh, it's still like it's relatively new company for 
you know, a very mature market, something is something special about it, right? Like that's not easy to do. Um, so they continue to do these acquisitions. They've set up a bunch of capital for acquisitions this year. Um, but they got to focus on their key things, which are organic growth, delevering the balance sheet, uh, selling some of their non-core assets that they think they can reinvest for organic growth. Reducing that cost of capital is going to be huge. And then this uh, disciplined M&A strategy that they got to keep doing. And uh, that's the waste business. It's a consolidation play. It always has been. You can, they've been buying companies at like eight and a half times EBITDA after they integrate them that are trading for like 15. Um, and that's very creditive. And there's something special to the green monster that uh, Patrick calls it in, or sorry, in the, the conference calls and on the shareholder letters, he calls his company the big green machine. And uh, I think it's kind of clever. That's GFL. Any questions for me there, Simon? Um, have you checked the uh, the debt maturity or uh, not quite? Nothing major due in the next five years. Uh, but, I mean, let's not kid ourselves. I mean, the balance sheet is, like, super levered, and, and they know that. But they were able to run this big merger and this big acquisition of the U.S. and delever the balance sheet with the IPO. And um, I think they're on the right track. I mean, yeah, the business is like 4.7 times net levered. Um, it's not It's not something to sneeze at. Like, it's a lot. And we've talked you, about this. It's, it's a lot. Yeah, do you see any risks with... Um, I, I remember I used to work at the city of Ottawa, and I was a staffing officer, and we were... Um, we had done a new contract with uh, with one of the big players. I don't remember at the time. I think it was BFI. And mm-hmm. um, are you? Is it a risk for you that they may lose contracts with certain municipalities? Like, is there like what like what type of length is there? And you know, is that something you'd be kind of cautious about? Because obviously, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of debt is not too bad if your revenues are constant. And uh, they're not going to dip. But if you lose a contract like that, right, um, could be a a big impact on it. Yeah, well, net rev growth is pretty significant over time. So I think that they're going to net expand contracts in a major way over and take market share over the next few years. I mean, that's kind of the thesis overall, right, to even own the business from the the beginning. But you bring up a good point, and it's why I think in the garbage business – Culture is underrated. Culture is actually, and customer service is going to be very important for this business. And it's, you know, it's something that you never see, right? The the landfills and the transfer station and the garbage collection. It's like this black box where the garbage just goes away and it's just like magic, right? But at the end of the day, their key commercial contracts, they got to be on the ball and they got to have the right culture and employees you know trained up in the right way because it's actually not that high of a moat because it's really easy to just call a competitor and be like get some bins in here and start picking up the garbage on tuesday you know like it's it's really not hard to do that transition so the culture is underratedly important in what seems like a sticky infrastructure biz uh they gotta be humble is the word i'd say because it's been a hell of a story i mean come on what a 2007 that's not that old 
Yeah, and do you know, out of curiosity, do they own the landfills, or is it a combination of them owning landfills and then the uh, municipalities? They own 98 landfills. 98, okay, okay. And you, a lot of them do own them, but I think there's some municipal ones too, right? Yeah, there's probably all kinds of joint ownerships, and they it might be like it's owned by the municipality and they just have like the license to operate it. Um, but... Again, yeah, they have like hundreds of transfer stations, hundreds of landfill, well, ninety-eight landfills that they actually own. Um, yeah, and I mean it's it's an acquisition play, really, at the end of the day. Uh, so I'm very picky about acquisition plays because you got to have the right person managing it, right? You got to you got to have the right person at the helm. I mean, there's only one Mark Leonard of Constellation that's that's brought them to you know the hundred bagger that they are. You got to be specific. And uh, if it's an owner operator, incentives are aligned better. And that's a good place to start. Yeah. I mean, they, they have a nice little dividend. Is it, what is it like? <laughs> probably sneeze at it. Yeah. It's like 0.13%. Yeah. It's like, why even pay? I don't, yeah. That's another thing, right? Like if I was running the joint, I'd scrap the dividend immediately. It's like WSP as well, like the other inf- the infrastructure services company, WSP, the engineering firm. They've paid the exact same dividend per share for over 10 years. Yeah, I feel like sometimes so it's, it's ownership who has, you know, a decent stake in the company and they want to give themselves a little bit of revenue. I think that it might be yeah. bad, but uh, I, I mean, I, there's probably they room to They just don't want to slash it. it, right? Yeah, exactly. And there's probably room to increase it over time if they uh, reduce that debt, right? So that's probably what's preventing them from increasing it. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone who owns GFL is looking at it and going, I really hope they raise the dividend this year. They're looking at it and going, I want. I hope you delever the balance sheet and keep doing M and A. I mean, that's that's the thesis for owning the business, right? But Canadians are dividend obsessed, so I mean, oh yeah, <laughs> maybe maybe uh, Patrick will just have to keep raising it to keep all the Canadians happy. Oh my God, yeah. Why no, is that? Looks- why, I don't know. why are Canadians dividend obsessed? Is it because of the banks? I think we've talked about this. Yeah, before. probably banks. Uh, energy banks. typically pays uh, pretty good dividends. Um, so I guess it's probably that. I mean, I, I love dividends as much as the next person, but right. uh, you have to you have to keep that in mind that it's it's not everything. Um, growth is really important. If you can mix both of them, that's great. But uh, you're going to be passing on a lot of good businesses if you're just kind of zoomed zoomed in and. You know, you're just looking for dividends. You're going to be passing on some really good opportunities, in my opinion. Say it for the people in the back. Canadian investors are so dividend obsessed and missing out on opportunities that might be just presenting themselves right there because you're screening for dividend growth. Like Simon said, I love when I get paid a dividend. Like, it's it's awesome. Don't get me wrong. Um, But, my God. I don't don't have that as a sole reason to own a business. There's got to be something else. <laughs> yeah, and there's nothing wrong with having a few companies that are that are your anchors in your portfolio that pay a nice dividend. Totally, and then you know sprinkling that with some more uh, more growth oriented business. I mean, I do that with Brookfield, right? They pay a nice dividend, but then I also have some growth stocks um, that do not pay anything, or you know, ten cent that pays uh, pennies uh, as well in the same bonus. <laughs> ten cents dividends a joke as well, but it speaks to how well the companies have done, right? Like if the company had done 
dog shite, um, then the yield would be higher. Obviously, that's just like the the nature of the uh, of the formula. All right, guys, I think that does it for this episode. We've talked about a few baskets. We've talked about green for life environmental, aka GFL. Uh, some other news, Simon. I guess I should mention. Uh, I have left my corporate job. Uh, my last day is in three weeks. I am running Stratosphere full time. I'd like to put some more effort into the podcast as well, even though we're already killing it. Not a big deal. Uh, so, yeah, that's personal news for me. I am going to be running solo dolo as an entrepreneur, hiring a team. Congratulations. And, uh, yeah. It's a big, Thanks, it's a big leap. It's a big leap. I'm scared and nervous and excited all at once. Hey, those are some of the best experiences, and at some point we'll be able to talk about some of those uh, renewable uh, yield codes. Yeah, that's another thing, right? Is like now I can talk to, talk about renewable companies because I don't work for a renewable company. Um, all right, guys, thanks for listening so much. Get stockmarket.com. Head there as always, and we'll see you next week. Uh, Simon, are we doing that that Twitter poll next week, or is we going to? Uh, well, that I'll do bank? it on the I'll do it on the weekend most likely. So uh, it's possible that um, it will already be up. But you know what? Maybe we'll do it next week so people hear this and uh, they can go and follow us on Twitter and go vote. So what yeah. we did was uh, basically we um, tweeted a reply. Uh, well tweeted something saying asking people to uh, reply to this tweet to let us know what companies they'd like us to review we'll pick the four top choices uh, that we get in there create a poll and then the one that gets the most vote uh, we'll review on an upcoming episode it may take a month or so because we have a few plans uh, before then but uh, we'll commit to reviewing that even if we don't know anything about the company because we get requests for like these small micro caps. I'm like, dude, I can't know every company on the planet. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. But this is your opportunity to uh, send a request. So that's at on Twitter at CDN underscore investing CDN for like Canadian. And considering CDN the amount investing, considering the amount of interest we got, I feel like we'll probably have to do it again at some point. Oh, it's an absolute Twitter growth hack. What do we get? Like 70 replies. Yeah, I think so. Um, it's it's there perfect. now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, so then you can go on there and uh, get your requests in, and then we'll run a poll, and uh, we'll get the people what they want. We'll talk about the companies you guys want to hear about. See you next week. Take care. Bye-bye. The Canadian investor is not to be taken as investment advice. Braden or Simone may own securities mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment decisions.